Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise our unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to 3CR. Tuesday breakfast, it is the 14th of May. Thanks so much to the Radioactive show. You can listen back to that program online. It's a program that uh, covers current news and information on nuclear, peace and energy issues. In the studio we have myself, George, Anya and Chris. Yay, good morning. (laughs) How's everyone going today? Pretty good. Good. It's uh, it's cold. Mm. As it's always. It's so cold. Yes. And tired. It's very tired out. It's very tired. It's the very weather tired. is really tired. <laughs> the weather's really tired. Yeah. <laughs> Feels. Yeah. Not my fault. <laughs> I'm not sleeping. It is the weather's fault. Mm. <laughs> Chris. Anya. Chris, do you want to start with? Yeah, new headlines. Fave? Yeah, fave. Um, let's get the really. Really sad stuff out of the way <laughs> first again. It's always it, ne- it never stops. Mm. Um, there is going to be an IBAC investigation into the botched home invasion over the weekend at um, Hares and Hyenas. It, it's a queer bookshop here in Melbourne. Mm. Uh, police, it's they are. It is allegedly a case of mistaken, mis- wrongful arrest, mistaken mm. identity. Uh, by now, maybe I, I would. Maybe a lot of people have heard of this. Maybe they haven't. But police, Victoria Police, stormed uh, the wrong shop. They did not announce themselves. It was it was the cover of darkness. The guy in there thought it was an anti-gay raid. He's a he's, uh, and he ran. He fearing for his life. Um, he ran. They tackled him in the street, and he was in surgery yesterday. And I'm I'm not sure in his current state, but people fear that he's going to lose the use of his left arm mm. because of that. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> You know, obviously it's all subject to an investigation, but it's also, by everything we know so, so far, just complete, um, uh, yeah, completely the police's fault. It is, it is a, um, yeah, it is particularly horrific. They've already apologised, so they, they have admitted fault, like it is there. They're doing. Um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see how this happened in the first place. Like, there's, there's going to be a few questions to answer. Mm. How this happened and stop it happening again. Mm. Um, there's a few other, yeah, a few other news stories. Again, another sad one was last night. Uh, Four Corners did a really strong investigation mm-hmm. into uh, the use of watch houses in Queensland to um, detain child detainees, I guess. Um, mm. uh, people younger than 14, young young as 10, uh, you know, there's, I think it's like 50 cases or something that they've recorded. Um it was really sad that it's like these things are used to, traditionally to ha- house like quite violent adults, but um, 
it is, I, I guess, like as a lot of youth uh, detention facilities are overcrowded, people are using these, the, the Queensland, Queensland is using these more and more, and this includes using, I think it was a girl on Suicide Watch that they put, like, in a suicide jacket for, like, a day or something, mm-hmm. just, like, housed. It's a, it's a horrible, it's a really, hor- it's a really grueling watch, so, mm-hmm. but um, important journalism. I didn't watch it, so a I watch watched it house. yesterday. W- what's well. a watch house? I think it's a place, my understanding, but Chris, you can correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is that it's a place that they they put in quotation marks very high risk, Uh also quotation marks, criminals that have Mm -hmm. committed the most kind of like heinous of crimes. Mm-hmm. So people that are they that are allegedly very dangerous people. Mm. And it's it's a it's a high security kind right. of prison type of place. So yeah. it's it's pretty confronting that yeah, and if you watch it also be aware that it is a pretty confronting watch. Yes. Um, yeah. that they're putting Trauma young warning, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. And they didn't give a trick warning up. <laughs> right. Uh, no. but yeah, that they're putting children as young as ten. Mm-hmm. And you can also see other people like or you can hear them. So if you're a young child and you're in there for a petty crimes or not even crimes that you're in there and you can hear people coming off drugs you can hear people screaming you Mm. can hear all this stuff going around you it would be i can't imagine Mm. no well i I couldn't even watch the full thing i I looked at the online version um but yeah it is traumatizing it is i I have no Mm. idea how it uh, has come about but it's also kind of what we've come to expect from the uh yeah our system was there also any um discussion about uh you know the makeup of these kids were was there a sizable population of aboriginal yes yeah, they did talk about kids? that i yeah. don't i don't think they gave that enough attention personally yeah, i mean okay. we're going to be i'm going to be interviewing someone today about yeah. another four corners program that was a bit problematic but um i think they they did talk about it but kind of in this way that i feel didn't really give enough voice to aboriginal communities mm-hmm. to speak about what was going on it was sort of like these helpless aboriginal children that are being put mm-hmm. you know there was that kind of narrative that i think right i mean right. obviously th- they are the majority in those watch houses mm-hmm. but i think the way that that story could have been told could have been done in a way that was right. a bit different to that yeah. and it could have yeah. been given more attention as well mm-hmm. i felt yeah 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 absolutely I, I couldn't agree more. I um and yeah, we'll probably, hopefully, we'll hear more about that going forward to see what kind of if reforms, if any, we yeah. get because I know the Northern Territory has gone backwards on these reforms mm-hmm. since Dondale, so yeah. I have no faith in politics to fix mm-hmm. it. But yeah, we'll see. We can hope. Yeah. Um. A uh, little uh, like lighter topic is that uh, we've hit that point of the election campaign that there's a bunch of. I guess, like, fact-checking reports coming out. Like, it's the final stretch. We've got the election this Saturday. Mm-hmm. Please vote. Um, we... Uh, <laughs> please. Please. <laughs> don't want to say who for. But <laughs> you yeah. can't. No, no, I can't. I can't even joke about it. They won't let me. Um, no, okay. Uh, no, there's... Um, uh, yeah, there's a few. It's actually cr- pretty interesting. It's like the, the top few Guardian articles. I, I went through a few websites this morning, and the top two are, like, both fact-checking one for um i think like the claims that like labor's tax concessions will hit you know those hard off whatever mm-hmm. and one is about how it will have virtually no all, all their franking credits and all the um negative gearing and all, all the very complicated systems that are really about minimizing tax evasion or mm-hmm. at, at least for franking credits and negative gearing is, is about like home ownership um uh it is. It, it will not hit the the bottom 50% of earners in Australia. So these are really, when Labor says that these are hitting the top end of town, they're actually, according to this, this um, ANU report, uh, they are telling the truth. Um, 
it is, yeah, and all, all it is, all that one is, is really saying that these things are geared towards trying to, like, you know, hit the top, quote-unquote, top end of town a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, ditto, um, a few weeks ago, there was this very, there was this wild climate change policy document came out called From Bay, it's a, a report called Bay Economics, mm-hmm. uh, and it just foretold, like, hundreds of million, hundreds of billions of dollars of problems coming from Labor's climate change policies, and all all that's happened is that a compilation of all these different um, climate change reports have shown that shown that that one, which the coalition was trumpeting for a week, they've been doing it for months. Actually, they're like, "Oh, Labor will kill the economy, yada yada yada." Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an outlier, and everybody knew this because the guy who did it was like working for mining companies and clearly had an ideological agenda. His modelling was incredible, like way off. It was just it had all these incra- crazy assumptions that you know you could that solar would cost like five times more than it currently does in 30 years. I don't know. All, all, all of this is to say that there's, um, it is, it is good to see that there's a day that all this, like, all the crap you hear during elections, there is a, there is someone out there going, ah, oh, actually, that's false. Mm. And we're going to see, prepare yourself for a lot more lies, because there are going to be, uh, a lot of them. There's already, there's already quite a few just flat out lies, and mm. they're going to really ramp home in the next few days. Mm. And, um, we might talk a bit, a bit more about the election. I'm not sure if we've, if yeah, we've got about, time, about, about the Senate, but, yes, yeah. Um, I only was, the time. I guess I was re- really confused, um, not having been from this country about, you know, voting for the House of Reps versus, yeah, voting for Senate, what, what that all means. Totally. So if you could break that down a little bit for me. Yeah, yeah, abso- absolutely. Um, uh, the House of Reps is pretty much, that's the one a couple of weeks ago we, we spoke a bit about, like, how the preferences, how, how the, the idea that you can't waste your vote, that kind of, that should mm-hmm. kind of apply to both sections, but the House of Reps is very easy because you only get, like, I think it's one to seven. It, it's, that's like your lo- local member. So for us, it's Adam Bant, the current member. Mm-hmm. There is a, and this isn't biased anyway, there's just like an extremely high probability he will, he will be returned going on current polling and the fact Labour's candidate has been stood down. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's House of Reps. So that's just like, you know, number one, whoever you want, number one, number two, whoever you would want those preferences to go to, number three. And you don't have to follow party how to vote cards, by the way. That is, that's an important point here. Uh-huh. That out the front, people love giving these things out uh-huh. and they do have a lot of influence because some people think, oh, I, this looks right. If I like, you know, liberals, I'll vote how they tell me to go, you know, but you don't have to do any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, House of Reps is fairly simple. It's just whoever's, you know, your current seat. Senate is a little more complicated, and I'll admit I did not fully understand what it was now because we had some reforms at the last election. Uh, so it's, it is, it's a similar system, but instead of, like, with the House of Reps, you number, every, you know, one to seven, whatever is, you know, how many candidates are standing in your seat. The Senate, because that's your state, you get, like, a lot more. That's the big, big green one you get wheeled out. And it used to be that you, um, you could either vote above the line, and it still is that you either vote above the line, uh, and it used to be that you just put, like, a one or whatever. And if you hit the, you know, the lab- labor, all, you're basically saying, I want Labour to control all my preferences. Mm-hmm. And that's how it was a while ago. That was arguably, there was a lot of controversies. Turnbull kind of got this reformed because it was, I don't know, it was a weird Trojan horse for a few other things. But it was, the, the, the end result is that, and then uh, the end result of that is that it's a little bit different now. Mm-hmm. So, like, you can vote above the line. You either have to go one to six above the line per party, or one, you have to number one to 12 below the line, at least one to 12 below the line, uh, and that's like individual Senate candidates. Mm. So that's why you have dozens below the line. Uh, and, uh, 
and you um and above the line there's it, there's actually a really handy video out there from our someone from rap called Emma Buckley Lennox who who dives into this a bit more in detail but it's basically saying that uh you because of the way preferences are divided in the senate mm-hmm. it's this is the one area that you could arguably i i think the chances are still low but it is possible to extinguish your vote if you don't uh if you don't mark, like sometimes, like even though you minimum above the line, you have to go one to six, minimum below the line, one to 12. Mm-hmm. If uh, she suggests basically going uh, above that, going one to 14 or when, however long you want so that you have complete control over these preferences, because it is the numbers are so much more complicated. And like below the lines, there's like hundreds of candidates here and above the line, it's um just the party. So the party is like, I, I still think that like if you number, it's like one to six parties above the line and mm-hmm. they each have like three to four candidates each or however it comes down. Uh, chances are still minimal in my opinion that it could, you could really quote unquote extinguish your vote. But mm-hmm. the way that it all plays out is that there is, if you want to, she suggests numbering everyone you want, you would like to see in the Senate until you hit like a party you really don't want to see. And then you know that like, okay, at that point, there's no chance, like, of... I don't really need to go anymore. Mm, um, but yeah, so all, complicated. All, it's so complicated. And it used to... It, it's arguably more democratic now because you control how the party preferences flow above the line. Yeah. And if you want to do it below the line, you can still do that as well. It just takes a lot longer. Mm. Um, so, yeah, sorry. I Hopefully, that all that really did was raise a lot more questions because <laughs> it is complicated. It, it is. is. It is. And tricky. that video that you talked about, which um, uh, is, it was produced by the uh, president is that is that the title? I think so. I, think I feel like she probably calls herself the president. Even if she's not the president, she would call it. We call her president. Right? She's our friend. It's fine. Um, Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project. Um, yeah, Emma yeah. from from Rap Rights Advocacy Project, not yeah. an actual rapper. No. Um, although you know maybe she raps. Who knows? Anyway, she's put together this awesome video. It's a six-minute video on how to make your Senate vote count. If we have some time in the show, we might play it later on, or we'll put it on our Facebook page yeah. for people to have a look anyway. Awesome. It's okay. very good. She's very good. Okay. All yeah. right. <laughs> I don't know if she's listening, Chris, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> don't fire me. Yeah. Oh, you can't. It's volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Look, thank you so much once again for those news headlines. Thanks so much. Demystifying the election a little bit more. Yeah, hopefully. By next week. Complicated. That we won't have to talk about the voting process anymore. Kick me off. Is that right? Yeah. Saturday, vote. Saturday, vote. Please get out and vote. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Thanks, guys. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. 
Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019, June the 3rd to the 16th. Power Radical Radio. to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We just played a couple of tracks. The first one was uh, it was by Tank and the Bangers. It's called Nice Things. And the second one is by Kadja Bonnet and it's called Mother Maybe. On the line we have George Rennie who's a researcher and lecturer in politics and lobbying at Uni Melb. George joins us to discuss lobbying in federal politics ahead of the upcoming election. Thank you for joining us this morning, George. Thanks for having me. Yay, great <laughs> great Yay. to have you on the line. And I, I must say this is the first time I've interviewed someone with the same name as me, so that's that's kind of a funny experience as well. It's great. <laughs> so we're talking about lobbying this morning. Obviously these have been pretty big issues in the last few months. We've got Peter Dutton, visa decisions with OPEZ, One Nation and the NRA. Is it as bad as people think? I think it's worse than a lot of people think. Um, look, the biggest issue is there's a thing called the revolving door, wherein you get a lot of a lot of, um, a lot of former politicians and they go and work for companies that they made decisions about. And that happens uh, with such alarming frequency. And even though I think... Uh, it, or, you know, it's clear that Australians generally understand that there's a problem with lobbying. But they, they actually, they aren't aware of just how pervasive it is. It's, it's, um, it's such a common, uh, it has, it has such a profound effect on our democracy and it's so embedded now in the democratic process and decision making. So yeah, I don't think, uh, I think people actually underestimate how problematic it is, even though they know, um, or they have a sort of sixth sense or a gut feeling that it's a big problem. And do you think there's a lack of debate or conversation around it in the media? Is this is this part of the issue? Do you think it might be? Um, I mean, you, you, certainly in terms of major outlets like uh, Channel Seven, Nine, Ten, uh, it's not been something that's been debated significantly. Um, I, I think I think though, I think the problem is that the. The government actually is aware, and the major parties have been aware of the fact that 
there is an appetite for change in lobbying, that Australians do actually uh, ha want change and, and want it quite badly. And that's reflected in a number of things. One is a po polls consistently show that Australians want changes in that field. And also there's a huge da uh, trust deficit or issue with trust. And, and the major parties are aware of that and have been aware of that for a long time. The reason they haven't wanted to change, I, I mean, to be a, a very cynic, to be a big cynic, is that uh, they, a, there is a little bit of a gravy train associated with with the worst kinds of lobbying, and and that's the real. I think that's the real reason why we, we haven't seen change. Uh, not 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 that you know, not because it hasn't been an issue that people are aware of or that people don't care about. They definitely do care about. It. Uh, I think it's, it's actually much more to do with the fact that politicians have been generally very poor at doing what the people want. Mm. And if it serves their interests. It's pretty frightening that, you know, that it's, it's clear that this stands in the way of democracy and just a fair election. Now, you've written about this in the conversation and you talk about the complexity around lobbying rules. That article is from 2017. Has much changed since then? No, the only thing that's changed is, is uh, again, just because of this significant public pressure. Now, both of the major parties, the Greens, um, pretty much every minor party of note, and crossbenchers, including crossbenchers in the lower and upper house at a federal level, uh, broadly all support some changes to our lobbying regime. Um, so that's great. That's that's a that's a plus. But if you look at the coalition's plan, it's it's very watered down. I think Labor's. We don't know a huge amount about it, but it, it doesn't seem like it will go far enough. Um, but but yeah, the short answer is nothing. Nothing has changed except for the appetite. Uh, we had very weak laws already, uh, and we're going to continue to have weak laws until until. I guess until they change the laws, they, ha they haven't actually done that. In fact, I should say, we don't actually have technically lobbying laws at all. We just have a code, uh, a code of conduct um, that's administered by the Department of Prime, Prime Minister and Cabinet, and it's not worth the paper it's written on. I mean, it, it's just hopeless. And so, and I think you touched on that in, the, in that article in the conversation, and you, you mentioned that... Uh, people such as CEOs and billionaires are outside of that code of conduct. Is that still the case? Yeah, they're, they're classed as third-party... Oh, sorry, not third-party. They're, they're in-house, as it were. So basically the, the code of conduct applies to third-party professionals. So you have to be hired uh, as a lobbyist to do a lobbying job. But yeah, that means that a CEO, when a CEO goes and meets and lobbies, for their company, they're not actually, um, they're not captured by the code. So it's already a pretty flimsy code. But mm. once you, once you realise things like that, the Gina, you know, Gina Reinhart meeting with a politician to lobby for her company, somehow she's not classed as a lobbyist. Uh, that, that, that strikes me as pretty flimsy and I'm sure many of your listeners would agree. Yeah. And what about transparency? Do we have access to all this information about who is putting money towards these campaigns? 
We have some uh, some information. Uh, there's a few there's a few uh, lines of inquiry, I suppose. So one is if you if you donate to a major party, or sorry, you donate to a party to anyone as a political donation, then that is logged and that uh, eventually you can access that. But there's a delay of uh, quite some time. It's about usually about a year. Um, if you want to look at who's paying for lobbyists, you can get something of a sense of it if if you look at the lobbyist register. But that's not that doesn't give you a good sense of how much is being paid. Uh, if you're talking about uh, any other forms of um, political support, say, uh, we just know very little about it. Mm. Um, there's no there's no uh, there's no rigorous system uh, that can tell us who's paying large amounts of money or any money um, outside of just a handful of um, registers, basically. Mm. Uh, so, so transparency is, is very low in Australia. You know, we like to think that we don't have a problem with corruption, and we just don't know that. We, 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 I think that's quite an interesting problem. Absolutely, and I think that if the US has more robust lobbying laws than we do, we have a serious problem, and that, you know, for a start, transparency needs to be addressed. I also want to ask about other lobbying issues, such as raising New Start. If there isn't money behind these campaigns, what does it mean for outcomes? Well, I think that's a really important question, um, and I think New Start is a great, great example of that. I mean, if you're, if you are a well-resourced industry, say, and you have a public image problem, and you want political change, you have a lot of tools available to you. You can lobby politicians directly. You can find ways to gain their favour um, by giving them donations, by um, holding fundraisers for them, sometimes by giving them jobs, if you can believe that, which is legal, by the way, apparently, uh, under our very weak system. Mm. Uh, there are all sorts of things you can do to win the favour of politicians. But you can also win the favour of the public, and that's really important because you've got all that money. You can spend money on ads. Uh, you can influence media outlets. You can buy media outlets. Now, you think about all those things that you can do, and we can think about all these examples of where that's happened. We could look at the mining tax back in 2010 where the miners did exactly that. They lobbied politicians, and they convinced a lot of Australians that, look, we shouldn't tax them more. Um, people for New Start don't have that advantage. Their, their reliance on impassioned advocates. And one of the interesting things about advocates is the advocates can be well-spoken, they can have the facts on their side, they can try and present people on New Start as, as, as being something that we should be empathetic or sympathetic towards. Um, and they can do that till they're blue in the face. But the problem is, what we know about political communications is this. Facts and figures don't have the, anywhere near the same power as emotion, emotional appeals. And things that get emotional appeals are things like ads. Um, news, people on a new start can't run an ad campaign. Another thing that gets people going emotionally are negative things, like the things that you might see on a current affair, uh, attacking people on new start, you know, the so-called doll bludger problem. People on Newstart can't afford to counter that. They can't threaten to withdraw advertising funding uh, to, to, to get a current affair to stop the assault, as it were. Now, a current affair, a, 
current affair is more critical of New Start than it is uh, politicians say who wrought the country. There are many, many, many things that a current affair could current affair could punch up, as it were, but they don't. They punch down mm. because they often don't want to lose advertising spending. That is a tremendous problem. You know, you know, we we have this. We have a political. We have our political system, and our political system currently favours wealth, and it's not just because of the politicians. It's also because of us. It's because of the way in which people uh, are essentially politically manipulated. And again, the, 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 the incredible disadvantage that you have if you're disenfranchised or lacking funds generally is you 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 can't play the political game almost at all, let alone as effectively. You're just at a tremendous mm. disadvantage. I mean, clearly the system is stacked up against you. And I think you raised some really important points around the media. And if you really wanted to go after people that were rotting the system, you wouldn't go after, you know, quote unquote, welfare bludgers. Um, but I want to squeeze in two more questions before we wrap up. and We don't have a lot of time. So firstly, will more independents and minor party candidates in parliament make any difference to this issue around lobbying? Um, yes, it, uh, it seems so. Uh, w most of the push for lobbying reform has come from independents and minor parties. The two biggest pushes in recent memory, one came from Jackie Lam Lambie in the Senate, and she managed to get the Senate crossbench broadly on side, and the other came uh, more recently from the lower house members, particularly uh, Cathy McGowan. The one caveat is this. Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party are... Uh, I don't want to get sued, but they don't seem to be particularly. Uh, they don't seem to be particularly good at, at getting the lobbying reforms right. Forgive my terrible grammar, but I'm trying to pick my words carefully. And <laughs> I suspect Clive Palmer's party will be the same, given that it's modelled on Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump, after all, did promise to uh, drain the swamp, but the swamp's much larger under him. And I suspect Palmer may well be the same. Hmm. And lastly, you're, you obviously very much want to see reforms in terms of political lobbying in Australia. Can you give us sort of a brief understanding of what this might look like? And you've sort of touched on some of these points already. Uh, and surely, the, the, you know, no money should be involved in elections. Uh, yeah, that's a really long... It's a tough answer. Yeah, to, sorry to hit you with that at but, the end. But, but in short, in short, that's right. You've got to take the money out. And that's actually more possible than people think. Um, you move to a public system of funding. Um, there's lots of ways you can actually reduce the need for political funds to run campaigns. I mean, look, one example would be in the UK, this is not well known, but in the UK they banned political ads. Uh, you, okay, you, wow. you don't You don't run a... a you don't run political ads on broadcast, so television and radio, uh, which are the main costs of running an ad campaign. So suddenly there's less of a need to be coming cap in hand to major donors. Um, yeah, taking the money out, the, the money creates the buyer. You take that out, you suddenly have a more even playing field and it suddenly means that people without the money who might still have a good idea have a better chance of getting their idea heard. That's my short answer. Yeah. <laughs>
Thank you so much for your time this morning, George. It's obviously a, a huge topic, but incredibly important um, for us to be talking about ahead of the, this weekend's election. Have a nice day. Same to you. Thank you. Bye. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. The Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is holding a free conference on the 10th of July at the Greek Orthodox Church 23-29 Victoria Street, Coburg. The conference will take a look at whether the Aussie Fair Go still matters, ask why there's a crisis of trust in politicians and institutions and question why public welfare services are increasingly private and costly. We'll also consider what action we can take to build the future we want. Limited places are available and bookings before the 10th of June are essential. Email eventsfgfpvictoria at gmail.com or call 0477-236-880. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition, free conference, 10th of July in Coburg. A 3CR supporter. Did you know volunteering contributes to a happier life? Want to know what you can do to make a difference in your local community of Whittlesea? Whittlesea Community Connections hold a volunteer information session every month. It is a friendly session where you get to meet others and be linked to not-for-profit organisations. Contact Michelle from Whittlesea Community Connections on 94016630 or visit our website www.whittleseacc.org.au to find out more. Our 3CR supporter... QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange a 3CR supporter.
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with myself, George, and Anya in the studio this morning. On the line we have Shan Winscript, who is a casual tutor finalising her PhD thesis in history at the University of Melbourne and is also an NTEU delegate. Shan joins us to discuss the open letter, which is asking NTEU National to not support the racist scapegoating of international students in uh, last week's Four Corners program, Cash Cows. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Shan. Thank you for inviting me. So perhaps we can start by talking about the program. I imagine that a lot of our listeners have seen or heard about it, but for those who haven't, maybe we could just talk a little bit about what actually happened. Yeah, so um, Four Corners, um, this is all part of the um, ABC's reporting of you know issues re- uh, related to international students. Um, the ABC actually uh, launched a series of um, news on Monday last week and um, it ended up by broadcasting Four Corners on the same um, evening. But all this news uh, um, gestures towards, to the, uh, towards the issues of, um, you know, international students can't speak proper English or they don't have proper IT skills. So the Cash Cows, uh, as a program, it um, had this elaborated narrative that um, Australian higher education system universities are uh, undermined. Um, the quality and integrity of higher education are undermined by um, you know overwhelming num- uh, an overwhelming number um, of international students um, uh, who you know uh, who, who don't really have English profi- proficiency or IT skills um, here, and it um, it has a number of problematic points. But the major one is that. Um, the major one is that uh, this one one university, Murdoch University, um, had you know sort of fraud, um, a fraudulent process of um, uh, granting international students visas, even though they can't speak um, proper English. And when the students come to Australia, they really struggle and suffer from 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 the lack lack of skills. Um, so that's the uh, main um, narrative, I guess. Um, and for us, it, it, it's, uh, the problem of this narrative is basically, uh, you know, we, we say, we, we're saying that it's fine you'll highlight some sort of, you know, isolated um, cases of concern, but you can't really generalise this to, to suggest that the international students are the problem because the problems are, you know, the problems are not international students. The problems are universities, funding, and management. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with that 100%. I work at um, at a university as well, and I, I, yeah. when I first heard about the program, I thought, oh, this is great. They're going to be talking about the actual issues that are going on in universities at the moment, and calling attention to that. And I was just shocked when I saw when I saw how the the sort of take and that kind of narrative that they developed. It was, yeah, it was it was quite a shock to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so can you sort of elaborate on why you feel that that narrative is problematic, that kind of sort of situates international students who don't speak, you know, English at the level that is required and yada, 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 why why that kind of narrative is problematic in in this conversation around universities? Yeah, sure. I'll um, begin by um, 
still by talking about the Four Corners um, interview here, mm. um, I think the main problems um, that NTU uh, members felt at our branch and um, more widely from other universities is that the program is based on, I mean, the, the, it, it's framed poorly. There's this poor framing issue. And also it, it's based on poor evidence. So um, we don't feel that there is a strong evidence to suggest that over, over, overall international students are lowering our standards. In fact, you know, as a tutor for um, more than five years at, at teaching at Melbourne University, I can't really say, you know, I can't really compare international students to local students because there is nothing to compare. You know, the the um, the lowest marks I gave to were not to the international students, so I don't think they are actually um, they are they are a problem. Um, the program, however, framed these um, single uh, isolated case. But, um, in, uh, at Mur- Murdoch University, um, in terms of um, you know, it, it doesn't really report on this. Sorry, it doesn't really focus on this case. It goes beyond and, bu- and above this case to link it um, to generalize. And um, uh, 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 I mean, the bulk of the program sensationalizes the incident. It links links the incident. Um, with the, you know, with the all too familiar uh, fear-mongering stories of, you know, uh, things like visa fraud, threats to border security. It actually interviews um, mm. a um, immigration former immigration officer. So education and border security conflate in the for, in the program, and they have no intention to make any uh, attempt to um, dehomogenize international students. So they they make these very wide, bold, generalized um, claims that international students are um, an issue, which I don't think is true at all. The poor evidence is actually acknowledged by the reporter herself, um, Liz Warrington. In a podcast, she was interviewed about um, her reporting of these um, incidents, and she acknowledged that the Australian student she interviewed, who you know, who was white, uh, actually sounded really racist. So I'm quoting her. She mm. said she acknowledged that he sounded really racist. But she goes on to defend him and his concerns. She goes on to legitimize his concern, saying that, you know, oh, this student who walks into a lecture theatre and see a room of non-white students and he got scared and he dropped out of the mm. hall. So. She defended as a legitimate concern, and then she actually acknowledged that all these anecdotal evidence are um, difficult. So these are different, um, issues of the program that uh, you know we, we don't think the program is um, a, a credible uh, criticism of international students. Um, more generally, I don't think inter- international students are uh, lowering our standard. In fact, many of them. Speak. Uh, many of them speak good English. The majority of them speak good English, um, and they do very well uh, at universities. My students, who you know, they do history, um, uh, humanities. These are more challenging courses, more demanding of their English language skills, and they're all doing very well. 
Yeah, and I think that, you know, that this is obviously part of a broader conversation around the representation of migrants and um and people of color in our media and how they they kind of use that though those stereotypes to kind of mold that into into the narrative. Um but I think I, I want to ask you about <clears throat> what what could they have done if they really wanted to point attention to issues within universities at the moment what what are the bigger issues in your opinion right so we think that the um the real issue um in i mean in the open letter we um we draft we think that the open uh, sorry we think that the um real issue uh um you know there are multiple issues that we can tackle uh, one of the biggest one is funding, of course. So funding has been um, cut repeatedly. Um, to, uh, funding to higher education has been cut repeatedly by, you know, successive governments. Uh, um, most notably is the Liberal government, who in 2017, you know, slashed billions of dollars from university funding and then slashed again millions in research funding. So these. Uh, funding cuts is the major threat to to the quality and integrity of our um, higher education here, and because part of partly because of that, universities um, cut its services to students. Um, tied to this issue is also the uh, running model of our universities. So currently, our universities. Um, have been running um, this sort of, you know, neoliberal business model. Everything's to, um, everything's designed to attract more um, students, more money. Um, so it becomes um, things have things have become, uh, okay, profit-driven rather than, uh, you know, uh, rather than fostering a community of intellectual engagement. Universities these days care much more about how to maximise um, uh, the profits. And, mm. and we think that this, 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 this is the major issue um, again, mm. the commodification of education. Uh, we don't have to run on this model. We can put our students before profit by offering more services to them, language service, for example, for, um, yeah. for students who are struggling yeah. with, their, with their assignment or essays. I would love to see... Four Corners or any other media program actually do an investigation into that and highlight those issues because obviously those are really important ones. Um, and just just as my last question, how has the ABC responded to the open letter? Well, they um, they responded by <laughs> sending us an opening email. Yeah. So they emailed our um, one of our organisers. Who, who um, drafted the letter and saying that they they're you know they're seeking legal actions. They're talking to, to their lawyers um, for uh, potential um, uh, defamation um, uh, uh, claims. Mm. But uh, and they you know they promised to send us a formal letter, which which never arrived. Mm. But we think this is just. Um, this is absolute nonsense. You know, there, there is no defamation. We're not trying to defame anyone. If anything, I, I, we think that international students should be claim um, should should be accusing the ABC for, defa- mm. for defamation because um, you know the program just doesn't really make any attempt to separate uh, an isolated incident 
from the overall, you know, international students community. Um, but I just wanted to quickly uh, point out that um, uh, despite all these, if you go up on the Four Corners website or ABC website, you see these um, swath of racist comments unleashed by the program, and that has never been acknowledged by the ABC. Right. While, while they're trying to threaten us, um, you know what I mean? They're, they're turning a blind eye to mm. all these um, uh, consequences. Uh, quite intended consequences um, of the program. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think that that really demonstrates that the, the way that they they talked about this issue has given rise to that kind of racism. Um, thank yeah. you so much for sharing all of this information about the open letter with us this morning, Chan. I really hope that we see some sort of outcome um, coming out of this. Thank you for your time this morning. We hope so. Thank <laughs> you for having me. The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019 June the 3rd to the 16th Power Radical Radio Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store we have books on waterwise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Next up, we're going to be talking to Jerry Plictis, who's here in the studio with us. Hi, Jerry. Hello. Jerry, <laughs> tell us about yourself, firstly. Um, I'm a bit of a dork. <laughs> uh, I like drinking wine. Mm-hmm. I like long walks on the beach um, when it's not raining. Um, <laughs> I'm, I love writing. I love it so much. It hurts. Um, yeah, so I decided to start this press. Tell us about the press. Okay. Um, so the press came about after years of people saying that my book was, um, not long enough. It was too skinny. It wasn't, it was too angry. It wasn't wide enough. Um, so basically I just decided to take things into my own hands and publish my own novel because I believe my own work. Um, and in doing that, I hope to publish other women of color as well. Mm. What is the uh, name of the press? Uh, Cara Sevda Press. Mm -hmm. And what is the name of the book? On the Sunday She Created God. Tell me about that book. What is it about and what inspired you to write it? Um, 
basically, again, so I feel like stories are super important and um, I felt like the stories that I was seeing around me, um, you know, not only the stories of women of colour but also young people um, wasn't weren't being told. So I, I really wanted to take that into my own hands again. Mm. Yeah. And so, so the book is out um, and how can people get a copy? Um, okay, so people can get a copy from our website, which mm-hmm. is Um And if you go to the website, you'll be able to score a signed copy. Mm-hmm. I'll probably be drunk and mm-hmm. I'll probably write something <laughs> inappropriate in there. <laughs> um, and without giving too much away about the book, what are sort of the, the, the main sort of themes that you're exploring? Um, I talk a lot about uh, sex, music, drugs. Um, career, loneliness, mm-hmm. um, I, I guess like the, the things that we face as young women mm-hmm. trying to make our way through the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while we were um, chatting, you mentioned that um, the Karasevda Press is focusing on publishing stories from women of colour in Australia and that it's really important in our current political and social climate right now. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so I guess we live in in a a time right now where there's a lot of conservatism, um, there's a lot of xenophobia, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of aggression toward women as well. Mm. Even in a, and I say this doing the finger thing, like an enlightened um, Westernized society, we still see a lot of violence against women, and so I think now more so than ever, it's really important for us for those for these stories to be told. Um, stories, uh, you know, I just feel like the same gatekeepers are sort of perpetuating the same stories, and now it's those. It's now it's the time to hear those stories. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think are the current sort of barriers or obstacles that prevent these stories from being heard? Well, how do I say this in a polite way? <laughs> how do I say there's too many white people in publishing without saying there's too many white? <laughs> um, don't get me wrong, I love white people. I'm friends with lots of them. <laughs> Um, but there are so and and you know we have to look at this as like the same stories are being perpetuated these gatekeepers are still um, you know not letting certain stories through I mean what's wrong with the you know we don't have a writer who's a Sudanese woman who writes in dialect for example Mm. why why is that Mm. yeah I think that's a really interesting point about gatekeepers and um, how they control the sort of narratives that yeah. And that obviously leads to, I guess, the understanding uh, of certain groups of people or certain, you know, communities, which then perpetuate negative stereotypes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so you, you, I know you're booked in for a lot of um, events to yeah. to talk about your book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how How is that all going? How Are you excited about this and... Yeah, it's really exciting. I'm used to being like a frustrated, angry writer who says no one wants to listen to them. Yeah. Um, so now that people are listening to me, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> mm. Um, in a great way. I think the community has been very, you know, in saying that I'm quite critical of publishing, but the community has been very like open. They've accepted me. Yeah. Um, like, you know, wonderful organizations like you guys, <laughs> um, letting me come on here and, and talk and other community radio uh, stations as well, like Triple R, um, mm. you know, 
basically other artistic organizations as well, like Pink Ember, who stock my book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been so much yeah. support. Yeah, it's been really great. And what has the response been so far to, to your book? Um, a lot of people say that it's raw. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean, I've gotten great reviews so far. It's a five-star review on mm-hmm. Goodreads, which mm-hmm. is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really think I have uh, a literary voice, which is both raw and poetic in, in prose style so I think people are responding pretty well to that sort of dualism in my writing yeah that's amazing and with the press um do you accept submissions currently or how do people get in contact with you about that yep um so great way to get in contact and support is just to follow us through social mm-hmm. um we've got a we have so many great projects in the works right now but I think the most exciting one is we're we're opening and we'll start in a journal um which will be called Blade Baby Blade mm-hmm. um and we're accepting submissions both not just writing from women of color um but creative work as well so if you're artistic if you're a photographer if you're mm-hmm. a designer and you're a woman of color please get in touch with me via social media perfect and we'll you know we'll obviously put all those details up on our social media accounts as well just one final thing once again can you remind our listeners how to get your book um so you can go to the website but it's also available at a number of wonderful indie books uh such as readings brunswick bound um sun bookshop uh hill content pink ember as i said before um amazon and booktopia as well so standard online stuff Perfect. Um, and I think this might be the right time to play some Beyonce. Oh, yay. What do you think? Well, thank you so much for joining us. No, today. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> what happened at the New Orleans? Bitch, <laughs> 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 You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That was Alice Guy, Friends with Feelings, and before that we had Beyonce, um, and the song was Formation. Now we are going to be talking um, with Dr. Anne Calise, who's a senior lecturer at RMIT Graduate School of Business and Law. Um, there's been a lot of noise about um, Adani and environmental activism and how that all sort of um, works in Australia. So hopefully we might get some answers about environmental law, uh, an often ignored um, and undiscussed topic um, personally. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anne. Hi, third time lucky. I am on the line. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and, you know, let's, let's firstly start by just um, trying to demystify environmental law. You, you know, when it comes to human rights, it's fairly common knowledge that Australia is supposed to be bound by a number of international principles and treaties, but it's a bit less clear what the situation is when it comes to environmental law. Is Australia actually bound to act in line with any international laws? And if so, what are they? Uh, it's a great question because, mm-hmm. as you say, it's, it's often misunderstood. Um, 
Uh, Australia is actually a party to a great many environmental treaties, mm-hmm. but um, the same as in human rights law, it's really important to understand that um, signing on to a treaty, having the federal, uh, you know, foreign minister signing off on a treaty doesn't actually necessarily mean that um, this applies in Australia. Uh, it has to be implemented into Australian law. So we basically need um, the government overseas um, signing on to one of the big treaties mm-hmm. and then it gets ratified in Parliament and then you also need to have a law implementing um, the international um, uh, requirements, mm-hmm. if you like. So, for example, um, in human rights law, um, we are a signatory to the Refugee con- Convention, and um, in Australia, this convention is implemented through the Migration Act. Mm-hmm. And in international law, similarly, um, you are asking what we sign on to. It's a long list, actually. The mm-hmm. big um, environmental law treaties are things like the Convention on Biological Diversity, Convention on Trade in Endangered Species, the International Whaling Commission, um, and most of these are implemented through uh, one federal law, which is the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. Mm -hmm. The other one, and this is where I think most Australian would have heard that uh, we do indeed have um, international commitments is, of course, the climate treaties. And, you know, you would have heard the government saying, oh, we will meet our um, Paris Agreement um, uh, commitments in a canter. Well, we we don't need to do anything. It's going to happen automatically with the policies in place. So Australia is a party to the Framework Convention on Climate Change, and uh, you may have heard of the Kyoto Protocol and mm-hmm. its a follow-up agreement, the Paris Agreement, which are both sitting under this big convention. And we have different laws that um, are trying to implement Australia's emissions reductions commitments under these agreements. Mm-hmm. So um, the Renewable Energy Target Scheme, um, Clean Energy Innovation Funds, um, if we have a change of government next week, we might see a revival of uh, the National Energy Guarantee. If you remember, that's the one that kind of really uh, made Malcolm Turnbull stumble in the mm-hmm. end. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that's where we are. And in short, yes, uh, and uh, similar to the human rights situation, there are many points where environmental lawyers get frustrated and think, well, we, we could actually do this better in Australian law. Mm-hmm. And decision makers are supposed to act in line with something called the precautionary principle. What, what does that mean? Well, um, that's a principle in both national and international environmental law. Mm-hmm. And um, it's basically a fancy version of um, better be safe than sorry or erring on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. Um, in in um, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which is, I've mentioned it before, it's the central environmental law um, statute uh, in um, on Australia's federal level, there's actually a kind of full definition, and it is a mouthful, but I did bring it. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, the precautionary principle is that lack uh, of full scientific certainty should not be used as a reason for postponing a measure mm-hmm. to prevent degradation of the environment where there are threats of serious or irreversible environmental damage. Mm-hmm. So the idea is if... Um, something bad could happen to the environment following a certain project, 
but we are not entirely sure. As is often the case, of course, mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. like you don't you won't see the full impacts until you have actually implemented it. You should consider whether you really have to do this. Mm-hmm. So um, it's mostly being applied in Australia to stop damaging activity where it's unclear if it can do serious harm. So we have things like uh, stopping projects such as, you know, building new houses in areas where sea level rise is forecast mm-hmm. or um, rerouting a road, you know, because in that area, uh, you know, there's a protected species and it's not entirely sure how this road might impact on them. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, if you only ever use it, if there is a situation, you know, almost an emergency situation, you want to implement this project right now, then um, you're, you're only, you're, you're basically just using it retroactively. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of talk about how can we use this more proactively to uh, prevent um, degradation. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a recent expert panel on Australian environmental law. They put out a report, um, a blueprint for future uh, Australian environmental laws, and they say we need something like a prevention of harm principle, which uh, should look at, you know, addressing um, anticipated risk, future risk through preventative measures instead of the courts coming in and saying, ah, maybe you shouldn't go ahead with this road or with this house because we don't know exactly what will happen. Mm. So we really need to kind of shift our thinking and say, um, like, be more uh, proactive in uh, stopping environmental impacts before they even occur. Mm. Absolutely. And can you tell us, there's, you know, there's been a lot of noise about this Adani thing that's, that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, to be perfectly honest, I know that it's a bad thing, but I don't even really know what, what's, you know, what's the situation around it. When it comes to something like Adani, what kind of environmental impact reviews does a government have to do? Yeah, this is kind of, it's also an interesting one because when I teach environmental law, it's always, we always talk about the government mm-hmm. and, um, uh, what you need to understand, I think, is, uh, is for in Australia, this is, of course, a federal state. So we always have to consider two levels of government, um, the federal government, of course, but also the state government. And for Adani or, as you know, it's the Carmichael coal mine, mm-hmm. that is, of course, the Queensland government. And both governments require approvals for this type of large um uh, mines or other large projects, uh, both under state and federal legislation. So, mm-hmm. um, typically, or in Queensland, you need, um, you know, a mining lease and environmental authority um, uh, under, uh, you know, environmental protection acts and um, uh, things like um, public works act uh, kick in. Mm-hmm. And under these types of uh, laws. We usually require an environmental impact assessment mm-hmm. for this type of significant project um, on on the state level. Um, so, um, and then you get an environmental impact statement, which helps um, the minister make a decision to approve or not approve the um, project. Under federal legislation, they are also having. Um, potentially an environmental impact assessment process under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity uh, Conver- uh, Conversation Act and um, um, 
they will usually in Australia accept the one done on the Queensland level and look into that. So there are bilateral agreements between the states um, and the federal level where they say, yep, we accept that for this type of project you have already done an environmental impact assessment and we're going to take this into account into our decision making. So impact assessment requirements on both levels, Mm. federal and state, but uh, usually only one is done. And how it works is that... um, Usually the objective of this type of environmental impact assessment is to look at all potential environmental, social, economic uh, impacts of a project, identify them, assess them, and, you know, look on how uh, adverse impacts can be avoided or mitigated. Mm-hmm. And then, um, of course, um, at the final stages, this will be, you know, given to the minister, and then they have to consider all relevant information, uh, including the environmental impact uh, documents. Uh, there, there usually is a public submissions process that mm-hmm. needs to be taken into account, and uh, and then we get a ministerial decision. Mm-hmm. Now. Um, the interesting bit with this is, which I haven't mentioned, is uh, this is actually prepared by the project uh, proponent. Or, well, I mean, Adani themselves not doing it; they're getting a consultant paid by oh, them. So okay. there is a there is a huge kind of interest to get this accepted, um, and you know, like how you want your experts um, reviews framed, and it's like. On the one hand, having having this done by the government would, would be an enormous cost. And, I mean, the idea behind it is this is the proponent. They want uh-huh. to get this project up. Yeah. They should prepare the impact assessment. On the other hand, you can imagine that there is, you know, um, it doesn't sound like um, it will be a, you know, a fairly independent process if they're the ones sort of Yeah, I mean, the, the minister doesn't have to take it as is and mm-hmm. they can ask they can ask for supplementary work to be done and that usually happens for uh, things like Adani mm-hmm. um, and uh, they can take other uh, things into account um, but um, ultimately there is there is a bit of a hang up in this type of uh, assessment that that you have the proponents so intimately involved and and so interested to mm-hmm. get this off the ground of course yeah absolutely and you know look oh my god there's so much content in there that I want to further break down and talk mm-hmm. about but unfortunately that's all the time we have today Anne um but thank you so much for joining us today it was, just, it was so fascinating thank you and thanks for having me anytime our pleasure bye Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. It's been a big show, as always. We'll have the podcast up hopefully later this week.
Thanks to all of our amazing, incredible, talented, intelligent guests today. <laughs>、uh, we'll see you next. Well, you'll hear us next week. And up next is Accent of Wim- Women.